You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. I got my co-host Eurosimos in the house as always. This is episode 89, and we have the incredible Brian Sanders in the house. You may know him on social media as Food Lies. He's producing a six-part feature-length documentary called Food Lies as well. And we go deep. We cover a lot. Um, and this is a very valuable, knowledge-based podcast all around food. Before we get into that, um, we have recently launched our brand-new private membership community called Friends of the Truth. This is for our podcast listeners that want to get a little bit deeper, um, don't really want to invest in the full-length eight-week course that is Rise Above the Herd. So what this is, is basically an opportunity for you to enter our world, to receive monthly live teachings from us, to receive monthly guest expert calls with some of the podcast guests that you've become familiar with. You get the chance to submit questions and to interact with them live as well. We're adding a whole bunch of resources. Most importantly, what you get is community, like-minded community, people who share your values are on the same page as you or on similar journeys to you. And it's something that we're really, really excited about. Um, we currently have an offer where you can get 50% off your first month subscription. So we've jam-packed this with value for a pretty affordable cost. If that's something that interests you, please head to friendsofthetruth.co to discover more about that. And we really hope to see you inside our container and to connect with you. Without further ado, this is Here for the Truth. Our website's hereforthetruth.com. All our episodes are available there. Thank you for listening. Please like, review, rate, subscribe, wherever you are, and enjoy this episode. All right, everybody. Brian Sanders is in the house. He's the filmmaker behind the feature-length documentary Food Lies and host of the Peak Human podcast. He graduated from UCLA with a degree in mechanical engineering and then turned to technology and sold an app company. He's used his technical background and love for fitness and nutrition to also work as a health coach and be the co-founder of the health media and technology company, Sapien. He's also a speaker and the owner of nosetotail.org, providing premium grass-finished meat to the 48 contiguous states. Brian, welcome to Here for the Truth. All right. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure, brother. One way we always like to kick this one off, I really just want to get into the major rites of passage that you experienced in your journey. What were the key turning points that allowed you to shift from, I guess, where you were to what you now embody? I never thought I'd end up here. I, I was a mechanical engineer. You know, I was just kind of doing my thing, going about my life and kind of l looking like everyone else. And that wasn't good because I hit 30 yeah. and I was kind of getting the dad bod. Mm. And I just had all these problems. I had acid reflux. I had joint pain. I had like overuse injuries from the computer. I had allergies. I, I just had just sort of like, yeah, I thought I was not going to be able to play sports as much. You know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you just turned 30 and then you can't play sports anymore. And then you just call it a life and you drink beer and watch football. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to play football. I was still playing flag football, competitive flag football into my 30s. Uh, because I, I switched my diet, I switched my lifestyle. And then there's also the, the sad part of the story, the big turning point for me. It's around the same time, lost both of my parents. So this was around 30. 
And so very young to lose both your parents as cancer and Alzheimer's. And they, they, they were a little older than normal parents, but not much. They just had these chronic diseases that no one really recognized or warned them about. Uh, and I think they're very much tied to the diet and lifestyle. Some people don't really understand that cancer and Alzheimer's are very much diet and lifestyle related. You know, some people think, oh, well, it's just obesity and type 2 diabetes. That's very obviously what you eat. And then everything else is genetic. I'm like, no, not at all. Not at all. And I, I visited other cultures that don't get these things at all. We, we, we can talk about later as I went to Africa and found people in their, oh, there's a lady over 100 jumping around, dancing. You know, this is how humans can live. This is what I think our ancestors were able to do. And I saw that firsthand in Africa. And that's kind of the opposite of what's happening with normal people in, a, in the US and other you know, westernized countries is they expect to have a dad bod. They expect to be on multiple medications. They expect to have all these mm. little problems. And then they just get worse and worse. And then they end up in a nursing home or, you know, it's just this terrible slide downhill. And that was kind of happening to my parents' looking back, I realized now that they both had pre-diabetes and didn't know it. And I'm here making the film, digging up all these statistics. The CDC admits that nine out of 10 people who have pre-diabetes don't know it. Okay. So this is crazy. We have this medical system, especially in the US, that spends more than any other country and we can't even recognize disease. Mm. Like these doctors don't recognize pre-diabetes and, and even the big government agencies admit it. Nine out of 10 people don't even know it. So they're walking around with elevated glucose, you know, like all these, these signs of problems and we just don't even do anything about it or we don't even recognize it. So that set me off on my path to start creating the Food Lies film, which is five years ago, over five years ago, actually. I went full-time in that and... uh everything else has kind of come from that. And we can dive into some more of the details. But I guess I'll also say that the changes for me personally, uh, I, I listed some of these ailments I had, plus, you know, just being like 20 pounds overweight of just being sort of around. I was never, you know, obese or anything. I, changed, I made some few dietary changes, just little bits, little changes. Lost the 20 pounds of fat, completely changed my body composition, didn't have allergies anymore didn't have the joint pain, the my chronic overuse conditions went away. And I didn't have, I've never had acid reflux since. And all I did was just change what I ate. And it, it's amazing. And so I wanted to tell the world, I want so many people have done this that I know around me and I've seen great uh, results. And then I started doing the podcast, started doing social medias while I made this film. And now there's, you know, I don't know how many millions of people around the world doing this and feeling great. Yeah, it's amazing like what happens when you make a simple change like that. And even it goes beyond just changing the food you eat. But the and I've talked about this before in previous podcasts, but the type of person, the psychology of a person that decides to make that change, you know, and how they shift their mindset and how that impacts your health as well. And I want to get into you've probably seen the the memes and the pictures being thrown around social media of like beaches from like the 1970s mm -hmm. or the 1960s where everyone looks fit. Everyone like looks somewhat healthy. 
And yet here we are 50, 60 years later, and it's close to the opposite of that, where wherever you go, whatever town you go to, you see like super dad bods and you see people that are obese and overweight and you see children that are unhealthy. So what, what do you think are the main contributing factors to that? It's a deep rabbit hole. And I, that's what I think about the most, actually. I, I always am just like, what changed? And I think there's this idea that, you know, the eat less, move more, this mm-hmm. like sort of like calorie balance paradigm. I think that's like the stupidest argument of what changed. So if you look at the, the statistics of obesity and disease, it was kind of just like going along, rising a little bit. And then it hit 1980 and it ramped up like crazy. And so I'm always like, hey, you think people at 1980 just decided to just be a slob? Everyone at once, just like, ah, we're going to be a slob. We're not going to count calories anymore. We're going to not eat less and move more. We're going to do the opposite. And then it just all happened at once. It doesn't make any sense. I think what happened, the biggest change is there was a huge dietary shift. And I do really appreciate what you say about it's it's a mindset. And there's there's so many things that happen when you decide to be healthy and you change your lifestyle, you change your thoughts, you change your intentions. And that has something to do with it. But I think the biggest factor was is just really what you eat. What you eat, that's like what interacts with your body the most. You know what I mean? Like if you think about, I, I think there's all these other factors like the quality of the air you breathe and the mm-hmm. quality of the water you drink and all that stuff. But really the food is like touching your body. You know what I mean? It goes through your body. Your food mm-hmm. is made, your body's made up of food. Uh, that you eat, right? I mean, it's obviously transformed in your body, but that's what matters most. 1980s, when the dietary guidelines got introduced and really in a big way, the food changed and it changed to basically highly, just more processed foods. Like people remember the food pyramid, the bottom is like six to 11 servings of grains. And there's a whole backstory of how we even got that. But really, when you look at that shift, it it basically shifts entire diet of the nation and you know exporting that to the around the world to more empty calories more nutrient poor foods right like you can say there's all these problems with grains you could talk about gluten you could talk about glyphosate you know and how we grow these crops and all these problems but one of the simplest problems is they're they're not nutrient rich if you eat a like i think for all most of history we're eating whole foods mainly it's all we had Right. And then up until 1980, people were still eating whole foods. You see the the people on the beaches, 1970, that's when you would eat like a a roast for dinner. You get a big beef roast for dinner. You had some vegetables, you had some potatoes, you know, you're eating eggs and bacon for breakfast. You could, you know, you you were eating a good diet, nutrient dense diet. All whole foods are pretty nutrient dense, even if they are, you know, potatoes that people may not think are, you know, great, but better than eating a whole bunch of highly processed foods and, you know, refined grains and added sugar and all the seed oils and stuff like that. So yeah, I think that was the biggest change was we we just shifted our diet into these more empty calorie foods, low nutrient foods, highly processed foods. And actually the the seed oils are, I think are a huge part too, is, is switching from natural fats to these highly refined oils that have many problems. Yeah, the fact that people demonized butter, man, you kidding me? Butter's mm-hmm. so good. Uh, but onto your onto your point, um, I grew up uh, in a Greek family. My parents were born and raised in Greece. I have multiple relatives that lived over a hundred years old, mm-hmm. you know, and they grew up 
dirt poor up in the mountains of Greece, you know, and uh, which is pretty, pretty wild and incredible. But I remember going to Greece growing up and I remember as a child, I'm 42 years old now. And I remember when I was young, again, I went and I saw everyone and everyone looked healthy. And then as I continued to grow, uh, grow up and continue to visit, I would notice that, you know, all the corporations and all the the popular places like McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts and Kentucky Fried Chicken, all these places would show up in Athens, you know, the, the large movie theaters, like our culture, our way of life started infiltrating these places. And more and more people, more and more children just started looking unhealthier, more overweight, you know, on top of whatever you want to say in terms of like the family systems, you know, been destabilized as well and how that impacts again, like your relationship to yourself, your relationship to food and, and you know, emotional eating is a big piece too. But it's just, it's, it just seems so obvious to me, you know, what's shifted and changed over time on that front. But I, I, I'm just, I'm blown away by that. It's big and I've noticed it around the world and that's what happens in Africa. It's like Africa is actually pretty healthy. Like this old, like there, there are some parts of Africa that like if you're in a very harsh climate, they actually don't have enough calories. But there's a lot of Africa that has enough calories. They just don't have good nutrition uh, or they're just starting to have this poor nutrition come in. But they're actually pretty healthy. It's interesting. I went during COVID. I went a year and a half ago. And everyone's like pretty fit. Like they're doing fine. They're not starving, you know. They just don't have all the processed foods that we have. And they're still doing pretty well. And they didn't, they weren't even doing COVID. It was interesting. They didn't, they just didn't do it. They didn't have the mass. They didn't have anything. They were just like, yeah. they're just doing the thing and they were fine. Like, and I visited hospitals, I visited clinics. They weren't, there wasn't like secretly people dying everywhere. Like we were there trying to interview people. They were yeah. fine. But they're just sort of like 30 years behind us where they they're like us back in the 70s where everyone looked pretty good. And but because they don't they can't even afford McDonald's, you know, for us, McDonald's is one of the cheaper foods. You go over there, there no locals can afford McDonald's. That's for tourists. It's it's pretty crazy, man. Let's hopefully hopefully they stay that way for another 30 years without watching the similar decline take place that has here for sure. Man, what I want to bring up with you is in 2015, um, I think like many of us, Cowspiracy came out, right? And I, I watched I watched this documentary um, and this blew my mind. You know, I was like, I turned vegan on the spot. Um, mm. I convinced my entire family um, to turn vegan, all my friends, how dare you? I, become, I became the virtue signaling vegan police. Um, <laughs> but I noticed this intense, like I, I held onto that rock for so long, for five years, but Towards the end, like I think I reintroduced meat into my diet in 2020, like the degree of brain fog that I was experiencing became undeniable. Like my ability to reason, to ration, to, to rationalize, to even hold a conversation for like a, a, an extended period of time and maintain being on topic and on point and all the rest of it slid to such a degree. Um, and then I reintroduced meat back into my diet and immediately I began to feel much more grounded, much more in control much more capable, higher self-esteem even, I'd say would be a byproduct of that as well. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this? Because there seems like there was just this huge five-year, six-year gap when these documentaries came out and all of a sudden, you know, there was a huge percentage of Western population that all, all of a sudden was like, yeah, okay, veganism is the way. And it seems as though it's kind of, you know, shifting back to some kind of 
normalcy now, so to speak. But can you comment on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's actually how I got started with this five and a half years ago when I made the film. So I definitely made myself watch Cowspiracy, which is hard to watch. But then What the Health came out. Mm, and yep, that was the other I mean, one. maybe yep. I didn't watch it immediately. But I remember that, yeah, when I watched it, and that's when I decided I need to make a film that will tell the truth because that was just so bogus. And it goes, it's basically anti-scientific. When you look down, when you look at it and uh, I, yeah, I interviewed tons of doctors and scientists. It's, I, I don't even know how they found those people in those movies. They find like the one vegan doctor or like the one vegan, even the game changers, you know, the game changers. Yeah, yeah, with the athletes. Yeah. The athletes. And then they find the one anthropologist. There was one woman who was talking, talking about how starches and, and, and grains, like it was just starches, like sugar made us become human. I'm like, no one thinks this. <laughs> like you are the only anthropologist <laughs> on earth that thinks that everyone knows it's meat and animal foods. And you know, there it's like the exact opposite of the, the consensus of the, every scientist in the world is we ate meat. We became human. Our brains got bigger. We, you know, I could go through the whole history, which we actually do in the film where the film turned into a six part series. And we're, we're, we're starting with the human evolution. It's all about fat and organs and eating animals completely nose to tail. And, um, so yeah, so many lies out there. The, the vegan thing is interesting. Uh, there, there, there are people who are trying to do good, right. They're trying to do they're trying to be moral, they're trying to help the environment, and they're trying to be healthy, right? Those three things are like the pillars. They're just going about it in the wrong way. And that's kind of what I learned because before I got into this stuff, I had no preference. I was eating the food pyramid diet, actually. I, I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't like obsessed with meat or anything, and I, wasn't, I didn't go vegan. I was just kind of in the middle. I'm like, yeah, I'm eating my grains. I'm doing all the right things. I'm eating low fat. I'm eating all the, the, the vegetables and all that. And it just wasn't serving me well at all. So uh, I kind of, yeah, really just did this science-based. But also what I'm saying is the, if you only look at the surface-level arguments of the vegan stuff, it could look good, right? And I think that's what happened. To, that's what you're talking about, the five-year period that all these films come out. Yeah. If you're just saying, hey, if you look at the mainstream uh, view of things, it's, it's better to not kill animals. or since the government has said that saturated fat is bad for you and butter's you know bad and they have these bad science and bad recommendations then you just assume that i'm going to be healthy if i i do this and then the environmental factor that's just kind of what everyone's saying it's like kind of this conventional view is oh man cow farts and yeah. like it's ruining the planet i mean they all it all sounds kind of reasonable until you actually look into it so that's the thing you have to go down below the surface level and not many people do that and not many people have time for it, right? That's our, our culture is just like, you just hear the headline and then that's it. You just go with the headline. Yeah. And that's well, why veganism, yeah. The, the, the big driving force, because I consider myself someone that likes to go below the surface and what's under the surface with the veganism side is the China study, which is apparently the longest running study of all time um, supporting, you know, the, the link between, I guess, mm -hmm. meat and an increase in heart disease, I believe. Well, that's funny. You mentioned that people should Google or use whatever search engine. Denise Minger, China study. Denise Minger, amazing woman. I, she's in the film and I interviewed her. She did 
very extensive breakdown and rebuttal and debunking of the China study. And one of my favorite parts of that was the Tuoli province. And so this was left out of the China study that they ate the most meat and they had the least heart disease and they just didn't put it in. They just didn't, because yeah. there's two things. There's a China study that's the actual study and then there's a book called the China study. Yeah, there's the book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so the book just completely left this part out. There's so many contradictions and, and Janice Minger breaks it all down and does an amazing job that I, I'm not going to try to do right now. But just know that that's just an example. So it's called cherry picking, right? So it's like the, the vegan author who wrote the China study book based on the China study didn't include all the stuff that goes went against their narrative. Yeah. yeah. What, what a surprise to cherry pick data to, to push a, a particular agenda, as if that doesn't happen all the time when you, <laughs> when you really dive in and look into things uh, going on in the mainstream scientific establishment. Yeah, I remember reading some de- uh, debunking of the China study years ago. I don't know if it was uh, Dr. Was it Gary Taubes? How do you pronounce Taubes. his last name? Gary Taubes. Yeah, yeah he's in the it. film as well. Yeah. He's great. Cool. Um, yeah, and on to Game Changers, too. I just happened to read an article the other day because um, Canelo Alvarez just fought Triple G for a, the uh, a boxing championship, and he had gone vegan because of Jane, Game Changers. He went vegan before his... Uh, his fight against, I think it was, what's his name? Bevel was his name. I could be wrong, but it was, uh, he went up in a weight class and he ended up losing. People were surprised that he lost. And he's like, after that match, he's like, yeah, I'm going back to eating how I was going to eat. Like that just didn't work. But again, you have these people, you have some of these athletes, you have a narrative. Media is really strong in terms of how it impacts your consciousness. And so the other thing we haven't really touched upon, I mean, Joel mentioned it from a virtue signaling standpoint, but like most people want to be seen as a good person, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So when you take these surface level arguments, like I care about the world, I care about the environment. I care about animals. I don't want animals to die. My dog, like I love dogs. I wouldn't want to eat my dog. But cows, I get it. You know, I understand. Like I, I, you know, I grapple with that idea. And at the same time, it just seems when you think historically, anthropologically, and when you're in a, when you're in tune with nature, a vegan diet seems pretty anti-nature to, to me in terms of how things go on in nature. So, mm-hmm. yeah, man. I mean, I, and, and the, the other thing I want to comment, because at the end of the day, I'm cool with individual choice. If you want to be a vegan and you want to choose this life and you feel it's the best for you, choose it. You know, it's just I've come across in my in my journey and clients over the years, like people who have chosen to be vegan health issues you know skin issues hair issues and beyond that even if they look healthy it's the psycho-emotional challenges that come into play whether you're navigating addiction or or maybe there's some emotional issues and you're not as grounded as a general rule that's what i've found with the people that i've come across over the years and i know so many ex-vegans that share the same story that joel just shared where they're like man i i, I ate a bowl of cream raw cream or i ate you know, I ate a tub of butter and a, and a fat steak, and I felt like something turned on in my brain. So, can you talk a little bit about that? What, like, what is happening? Like, what are the misconceptions of of, mm. of veganism versus an animal based diet? Well, there's so many. I do think there's those three pillars, and we can do each pillar, right? There's environmental, there's moral, and then there's health. And the health stuff, what you're talking about, I don't think it's a human diet at all. And I, I think I've been unbiased in my journey and have, you know, really just with an open mind, just looked at the science. And from what I see, it's just not scientifically what humans should eat, right? We have a digestive system that evolved away from our chimp ancestors 
and now requires animal foods for just simple vitamins like B12, right? For one thing, but just even the, the way our stomach, our digestive system works, like our small intestine and large intestine completely change. And we don't have the large intestine that our ancestors do that just ferments plant foods. Like that's what gorillas and chimps and all these other animals, like a cow, it takes in these low quality nutrients and it ferments them like, and then turns them into actually short chain fatty acids and that can fuel their body. Our, our, we can't do that anymore. Our small intestine grew where that's where we digest the animal foods. And that's because we got so much good nutrition from them and it helped our brains grow. And so that's why we, we do need animal foods for the nutrients and just for how our bodies are designed. And so I think people can get away with it for a short time. And of course, they're going to feel better yeah. if they have been eating the standard American diet and then they eat a whole foods diet and they're, you know, they're completely cutting out all these food groups. They're eating less. They don't without knowing it, right? Some people, vegans, they, they get really skinny because they're just sort of malnourished. It's mm-hmm. a good way to lose weight because you're, you're, it's almost like a starvation diet that allows you to still eat. It's almost like fasting, but while eating, because your body's actually not getting good nutrition, right? So yeah, that's I, what it is. So I, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I think I experienced, I, I experimented with veganism for like a week, like shortly after moving to LA in like 2013. And I think I, I lost weight just in that week, but I also felt way more scattered, way more emotionally reactive. Like I didn't feel grounded. I didn't feel solid in who I was as a man. I just felt like, like the wind was just going to blow me over. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm, d- I'm done with that. I can't, I can't keep doing this. For, for me in the beginning, I felt actually quite incredible. But looking back, I think it was kind of like a detox, maybe potentially like a little detox period. But then ultimately I wasn't really restoring with anything. Well, there's also the, the placebo impact too, you know, like, like I'm doing this thing. I'm making a change in my diet I, and, and everyone says it's good and it's healthier and it's the best way to be like, that's going to have an impact on you, in my opinion. No, you can comment on oh, that. Absolutely. Want, Brian, you know. No, no, absolutely. It is. There's so many things. That's what we're talking about. If you're being intentional about the way you eat, you're making healthier choices. Yeah. There, there's so much. There's science based around that too. It, it's it's not, well, placebo effect is science actually. Yeah. And yeah, you're doing so many things. You're making healthier choices. You're also, yes, you are probably detoxifying from the standard American diet, right? You're, you're, yeah. You went from complete garbage to something. I think veganism could be fine for like a month if you if you want to as like some sort of detox or you're you're kind of doing a fast while eating. That's I, I stand by that. You're doing a fast while eating, and fasting is great. You know, it does help your body your body to not always have to deal with well so many bad foods all the time or just not having to digest so much stuff. But it just isn't long term. It just doesn't work long term because you're not getting all the nutrients you need. And even if you do supplement, some people who are wealthy enough to do it, you know, the people who who make it work seem to be really athletic, like super like endurance athletes type that not only have a lot of money to do it, but they really focus on health and exercise. And they're they're and they also, I think, because they they eat such a high volume of food because they're exercising so much, you know, these endurance athletes, then they can maybe get just enough nutrition out of that plant food just by volume, right? If they're eating like 5,000 calories a day of plant foods and then going on all these runs, like in the Game Changers, the guy, one of the guys in the film was, they follow around, it was a ultra endurance athlete that, you know, ran across the country. Yeah, he's getting so much nutrition 
so many calories per day that he's getting an okay amount of nutrition. But uh, normal people, they either, they're not going to do it correctly. They're going to lose weight and feel better. But then as I'm saying, if it keeps going, then they're, they're, and they're not going to end up well. And, or they end up overweight because they're eating processed vegan foods, right? It's like, like the, so the junk vegan diet. Yeah. So it's like you go two directions. I think both are malnourished. You can be too thin and malnourished, or you can be obese and malnourished at the same time. And that's actually a line from a film. One of our great doctors in film, we're at a crazy time in history where you can be obese and malnourished at the same time. Mm, interesting. Interesting statement. Um, so like in terms of like agendas, what are the coincidences that took place, I guess, perhaps in the 1980s when the food pyramid was introduced or even in the last five to seven year period with the rise of veganism and plant-based diets? What do you think that's correlated with in the bigger picture in terms of why is that coming in so heavily? Mm. Well, I like to get into this stuff on like why it happens. I did a presentation actually at a conference and it was called the trillion dollar exposing the trillion dollar agenda against red meat. So I think this has kind of been going on for about a hundred years where there is kind of this idea of man, it's kind of like the 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 kings and the peasants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, you know what I mean? I think if you go back to the history of just even how like how these wealth and hierarchy classes existed, it's when we started refining processing grains in like ancient Egypt and they, the, the pharaohs accumulated all this wealth. And I think it's like kind of remnants of that where you have kind of these people that, that make all the money and have the power by, by controlling the food system, really. That's, that still happens today. The, the people who are in control of the narrative are the people making all the money from the food system, from pharma, from everything. Right. This is where all the, the money is, is where the power and that's where the message is coming from. If before we had all this messaging of plant based, it, people would just eat normal foods. And that goes back 50s. What's the what's the di dinner? It's a, a roast, you know, it's chicken, it's beef, it's some vegetables and some potatoes. Like this is what we always ate. Something guided us away from that, <laughs> you know, and I always get like kind of conspiratorial. I'm like, why did we go away from that? For all the history, we knew that animal foods were healthy. We, every day was a fight to get animal foods. Still mm. in Africa, speaking of Africa, I talked to all these people. What is their daily mission? Make enough money to afford some meat. Mm -hmm. They know the meat's healthy. They're like, this is, some of them can't afford that much meat and it sucks and they hate it. And all they want to do is make enough money to afford meat because they know it's good nutrition. And so I'm like, what changed? Like, why did this happen? And yeah, I mean, there was bad science that was done. And we tell the story of why that happened. And it started in the 1950s. And, you know, thinking that saturated fat was bad. And that's sort of a little rabbit hole. Uh, there's, there's even the, the food pyramid, the guidelines, even earlier, they actually were different. They, they actually had only three to four servings of grains at one point. And then the food and the the people in like the, what's it called? These big industry, the corn, wheat, and soy lobbies pushed it and, and changed it to 7-Eleven. They actually did have influence on this. They have lobbyists because they make so much money off it that they can actually lobby to get these new guidelines switched. And also 
there's just not that much uh, they couldn't afford to feed the, the world this. So if you have uh, the government has to pay for the food for like the healthcare system, for the the military, for nursing homes, for mm. food stamps, all this stuff. They realize there's doc documented case of this of them saying, "Hey, we can't pay for this if it's fresh meat and fresh vegetables and fresh foods. We're not going to be able to pay for the food stamp program. We have we're not going to pay for all the hospitals and the VA and the prison systems, even the school systems that, that have the subsidized programs." So it's way cheaper to just feed them on cheap subsidized corn, wheat, and soy. So yeah, it kind of goes back to money and mm -hmm. just big industry. And there's no money in Whole Foods. You know what I mean? Like there's no money in meat. There's no money in vegetables. There's no money in fruit. You know, it's not like there's a big profit margin on them. The profit margin is on the processed foods. So that's kind of what happened is that the processed foods have so much money that they can do the studies, they can do the commercials and do the marketing, they can even afford the lobbyists. And that's really like how it it guided the, us to where we are. Yeah. Um, I remember, again, a while ago, reading about was it the Ansel Keys study? Was that the yeah. study that kind of seven countries? Study. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that, that's Ansel Keys. So I, I, yeah, I briefly mentioned that that was started in the 50s. And Ansel Keys, and there, there was this idea. President Eisenhower had a heart attack in the 1950s. This is also when everyone was smoking, right? This is they're, they're smoking in elevators, they're smoking in their baby's room, they're smoking in their car, they're smoking in the shower. No, they're so they're they're just constantly smoking, and they they started eating a lot more vegetable oils actually and processed foods. So there's all this more heart disease. And then they they got this bright idea that it was animal foods, and Ansel Keys was the Okay, there was something called the McGovern Committee, and they put this group together, and they were trying to figure it out. They didn't have all the science back then. And Ansel Keys was one of the guys that thought it was saturated fat, and he he actually this is a good example of cherry picking. He actually looked at 22 countries and the their relationship of saturated fat and heart disease, and it was kind of all over the place. But he just chose seven of those countries that actually fit his narrative that the more saturated fat they ate, the more heart disease. There's actually another guy, John Yudkin, and he was an English guy, and he had a uh, completely different idea. He thought that the, it was because of the sugar and the, the flour and the vegetable oil. He said, whenever countries adopt these three refined ingredients, that's when they get the heart disease. And so it was the competing theories. And Ansel Keys won out. The, the quick story is he won out. He for whatever reason, I think maybe people wanted him to win out. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And, and and then that kind of just opened up the door because if you're saying, oh, okay, it's it's the refined ingredients, it's the refined flours and sugar and oil, that just screws all the big food companies. So guess who won? Well, and so Keith, and that and that that like gave the green light to all these food companies to take out fat and add in basically sugar, flour, and oil. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we've always, we've also, we've moved away from localized ways of doing things to feeling that we need to centralize everything, you know, let's make things bigger, faster, cheaper, etc. And, you know, one of my early documentaries I watched right when it came out was Food Inc., you know, in 2007 with, uh, was it like, Michael Pollan, some other people, I remember I was first introduced to Joel Salentine and that and it just showcased like the, the 
again, like we see in so many different industries, the incestuous relationship between like government and industry and how they just go back and forth, you know, from the board of a company to working for the government. And then people are just creating the laws and there's all these conflict of interests that play into it. And, um, you know, this idea that we need to feed the whole world as opposed to like, what if just different localized environments just focused on each other and, and had, you know, regenerative agriculture and, and uh, just, you know, good, healthy foods and, and proper farming as opposed to all this industrialized farming, which is just insane to me. But anyways. Well, feed the world, that, that's a good one. So people, yeah, think we had to feed the world. If we, if each community fed itself, then by default, you just fed the world. Yeah. Right. It, it just we if we do it locally and we can, we could feed the world. So it's like the, the top down approaches never work when they're like, oh, let's feed the world. And our idea is to like send sacks of grain to Africa. That's when it doesn't work. You know, yeah. you, no, it makes sense. And it's it kind of relates. So we we, we interviewed G. Edward Griffin on the podcast uh, last week, and we we're oh, talking ooh. about this idea of collectivism versus individualism. And so it, it kind of plays into that as well. It's like, instead of putting the individual at the center of society, we put the group. And so it's like, we put feeding the whole world at the center of, 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 of our, um, our agenda, agenda, as opposed to let's just focus on like a more localized approach, you know? So I feel like it relates in that. Yeah, but at, at at what cost? Who's who's sacrificed? You know, by putting the group at the at the at the center of society is always the is always the question, and I think we're seeing that now for sure. We are, and wow, J. Edward Griffin's a gangster. That's awesome. He's the man. Um, yeah, bro, we here for the truth, man. That was around, dude. No, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I've known about him for a while. Once I started looking into all this stuff, like how the world really works, and then uh, you kind of. You get to him and man, it, it, it it's like the World Economic Forum and this new idea. It's like, that's the, the thing. It's like the peak collectivism is their idea is that we're going to solve the problems by doing things from the top down. And that leads to the classic, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe they put that video out. Oh my and God, then, man. And it sounds so good. So yeah, these people don't understand for one, I think they don't understand history. Anyone who believes in that stuff, they don't understand history and how it's failed. And they don't understand just social, like human dynamics. And then they also, you don't, it sounds good in theory. And then you realize, oh, but then who owns everything? And you're like, like, oh, well, we do. You know, it's like, <laughs> but it's all good because we're going to be good. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the demonization of meat, we, we've embarked on a whole new arena where it's like, you will eat the bugs and be happy. <laughs> oh. You know, like here, have some crickets, have some bugs, have this. You don't need any meat, you know, save the planet. Bugs are the answer, you know. And again, I don't want to knock on other cultures that have eaten bugs and use that for protein source. But it's like back to what you were saying before, the people that have the power, the people that have the money, the people that are at the top of the, the food chain, you think they're they're chowing down on crickets and worms? even though they're putting out all the celebrity pop propaganda. No, they're chilling and they're having a nice filet mignon, you know, and, and enjoying the deliciousness of some red meat. Well, that's how it always goes. That's what I'm saying. That's how it always goes throughout history. People who think these are good ideas, they don't realize that the people orchestrating these plans are not following any of these rules. Yeah, it's just, exactly. it's for thee. It's like rules for thee, not for me. And, but that's what I'm saying. That's why it's, it's always been throughout history. The same thing, the pharaohs and the yeah. slaves. Yeah, 
But throughout history, I, I was watching year, a couple of years ago. I watched, uh, man, that Netflix show, the the Last Kingdom, and it was about yeah. like the Vikings versus the Englishmen, and back in like whatever 1500s or maybe it was I forget already. Does it's the same thing? The, you have the kings; they're eating the finest foods, and they just have to make decisions for the greater good. It's it's actually this really complicated problem of of like the greater good. You know what I mean? It's like, this is a hard thing to do because I, I think it always goes poorly though. When you think when you're trying to do something for the greater good, it kind of always doesn't end up working. Yeah. As you know, as, as J. Edel Griffin's aunt Ellis said, <laughs> the, the uh, road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, he commented on that last week too, where it's like, well, the idea of like the, the greater good for the greater number, like, Oh yeah, I like that goal, but the the way we go about doing it is the issue. And this is where he went into talking about needing to make the individual at the center of society as opposed to the group. And the the challenge with collectivism is the person who has the most power. Everything we're talking about now, they're the ones who decide what's best for the collective. Yeah. You know, it's never really the group's interests. It's the individuals within the group who exert the most influence, um, whose whose agenda is being ensued. So we've kind of we've skirted around it a fair bit, but I really want to get to, I guess, this, in your opinion, in all your research, what is the ideal diet for a human being? I know it's a vague question. It's one that's oh, thrown no, around no. a lot, but what's your take here? I love this question. It's, it is what I think about. I think about how we go, what got here, where we went wrong, you know, like why we end up in this mess. And when you answer that, you kind of end up. So what is the ideal diet? Yeah. So it's like, kind of like all I think about and, Man, I, I've evolved my thinking and I'm kind of glad that the film didn't come out five and a half years. Well, it wasn't going to come out that quickly, but I started it and it took so long and it's, it's been a journey and I've come out with an open mind and I've, uh, I've changed my opinion and I, I think I'm less biased now. So to answer the question, <laughs> it is a framework and it's pretty simple. It's really based on this the idea that animal foods are healthy, whole foods are generally good, and processed foods are the problem. So it's kind of the opposite paradigm. So in the mainstream, they will say animal foods are bad and processed foods are fine, right? They're just like, oh yeah, like it's just about calories in, calories out. You know, you can eat a bagel, you can eat cheese sticks, you can eat uh, anything as long as you count your calories and all foods are good and you know it doesn't matter if it's highly refined and has like a hundred ingredients in it it's just calories and animal foods are bad avoid them at all costs it's really just exact opposite we're fighting the wrong enemy I, i'm i'm gonna get specific don't worry I, i'm starting high level high level is we're fighting the wrong enemy they're saying that meat and and fat and butter and animal foods are bad and that processed foods are fine that is why we're in this mess as why you can give all these statistics 88 percent of americans are metabolically unhealthy newer study only seven percent are metabolically unhealthy so 93 percent of americans are metabolically unhealthy this is crazy this is because we're fighting the wrong enemy of course you're not going to get anywhere you're fighting the wrong thing of course it's not working because animal foods are great they're the pillar of human health and processed foods are the problem. So you just have to recognize that. So that's the highest level of like what a good diet is, mm -hmm. is embracing animal foods and whole foods and realizing processed foods are the problem. And so what does that mean more practically? 
or I mean, what do I eat? What do, what have I come down to? I eat any animal foods. I eat beef. I eat lamb. I eat chicken. I eat sausage. I don't have a problem with sausage. A sausage, if it's just, you know, if it's just meat, like it's just meat. Processed meat, I think, is not is not a bad thing. I think processed meat gets a bad name because people eat hot dogs and sodas and buns and ketchup with filled with corn syrup and milkshakes. And then they, they're like, oh yeah, it's the hot dog. Like, well, <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I don't think hot dogs like a health, I mean, I'm not just going to eat hot dogs all day, but yeah. I think the, the bun of the hot dog and everything else around it was the bad problem, the bad part. So I eat all kinds of meats, all kinds of fats. I, I think all kinds of just whole foods, fruit, I think is great. Fermented vegetables, especially I, I like, you know, traditionally prepared foods. Like we've been like fermenting things um, like sauerkraut. I think that's great. Uh, I don't know. I just kind of avoid the processed foods. I think bread is a processed food. People don't really realize that. They think, oh, bread, you know, being forever. Well, we haven't been eating the bread that we eat nowadays forever. It wasn't always like soaked in glyphosate forever. It wasn't yeah. like monocropped and like poor soil and just covered in pesticides and herbicides and highly refined and also just not even traditionally prepared. You know, this, this bread we get is not the traditional bread. Traditional bread, it's like fermented and overnight, you know, this, and we eat sourdough and you had, you know, this fermentation process that takes like two days, one, you know, overnight or two, even to up to three days that actually helps make it more healthy. It's sort of, uh, op, you know, g gave more nutrients, got rid of some of the anti-nutrients. So people don't realize that bread is a processed food. Pasta is a processed food, highly refined, you know, just long shelf life. Same thing, having additives, having herbicides, glyphosate, all this kind of stuff on it. People don't understand that these are processed foods. So the the the, the high level view is there, yeah, there isn't a specific diet. It's kind of framework. And the framework is embracing animal foods, embracing whole foods, and realizing that even bread and pasta are processed foods and trying to minimize those as well. Mm. Um, like, obviously, there's a lot of fear and warning around fish, particularly these days with mercury levels, whatnot. What are your thoughts on seafood? And I guess fish and the whole mercury paradigm in general, is that valid or? Mm. Could be. I mean, so big fish like tuna are have a lot of mercury in it because they are giant fish that eat all of the smaller fish below it and accumulates, right? So the, the, it, it accumulates as the fish get bigger because they eat all the smaller fish and it bioaccumulates. So I wouldn't eat tuna every day. Uh, I, I think farm fish are a problem. If people eat farm salmon. It's actually, they eat like food pellets. It's actually really gross. They just like dump a bunch of kibble, this like fish kibble. And it's just, it's the same thing. It's just like highly refined with herbicides, pesticides. It's just a nightmare. So um, yeah, I would eat wild caught fish. Absolutely. Super, super highly nutritious. Even better, I think is, uh, just like, uh, lobster oysters, you know, all these other fish, shrimp, like you're eating the whole animal. Like if you're eating a shrimp, it's like, you're getting all the nutrients in it. You're getting uh oyster. It's like you're eating the entire organism. You're getting mm -hmm. a ton of nutrients. Like people, you could be vegan, I think, and just eat oysters once a week or, you know, a few times a week and be okay. They have so much nutrition. They have so much zinc and iron and B12. Yeah, I want to jump in on that real quick is I, I had a, 
had a friend of mine who's a, a vegan and I mean, absolutely just, I, I respect her because she, she just loves animals to, to mm-hmm. no degree um, or to the highest degree. Mm-hmm. And um, I had recommended, cause I think she was dealing with some health issues. I recommended like, would you be open to having liver capsules, even just the liver capsules as a vegan? And she started incorporating liver, cap- liver capsules and I think she legit and she felt she started feeling so much better just from that simple act of, of, of getting some organ meat in, in her. So maybe you, if you can, you can comment on that. Cause it relates to what you were saying about a vegan just having some oysters. Uh, liver and oysters are kind of two of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. You can, I'm telling you, they can give you enough nutrients to survive as a vegan. I wouldn't recommend it, but yeah, people don't eat these foods anymore. And it, this is an interesting one. People think that oysters are aphrodisiac. I've come, I've come to a re- revelation about this. They're not aphrodisiac. What they do is they have a ton of zinc and iron and B12 and all these things that people are short on. They even have copper, like these hard to get mm-hmm. nutrients, minerals that, that, that are really needed. So the, the entire population is walking around lacking in all those vitamins, minerals. They eat an oyster. All of a sudden, their body works again. Their <laughs> body's like, Man, you gave us some nutrients. Let's reproduce. You know, humans, yeah. this is how humans work. If you are on the edge of dying or you're nutrient deficient, your body isn't trying to make babies. You know what yeah. I mean? Same thing for women. Women lose their period if they go vegan. A lot of women lose their period because they they're not getting enough nutrients. They're not their body's like we're shutting down. We're not going to have babies. You don't have enough nutrients. Same thing with guys. They lose their libido. They lose their erections, they lose all kinds of stuff. Actually, there's a story. Tim Sheaf, he was in The Game Changers. He dropped out. I interviewed him for the film. He uh, was a vegan prince, they called him. He was an athlete and he went vegan. And then something compelled him to eat salmon. And he's like, he told this story. He's like, one day, I just I, I just was compelled to eat it. He, he's talking about how he lost his entire sex drive. He had no erection. He, he was just a nightmare. Just completely lost his manhood. That night, he had a wet dream. He, it mm-hmm. all came back in one night after the first day he ate salmon and everything came back to life and he never looked back and he eats an animal-based diet now. So it, it's crazy. It's your body. So yeah, so the oyster story is that that's why people think it's aphrodisiac just because it has all the vitamins and minerals that people are lacking in. And so it just gets normal people back up to baseline. So man, they're... Liver is one of them. Oysters. Um, yeah, salmon. Like just these these foods, well, salmon people eat. But a lot of the foods that people don't really eat much anymore that we used to eat in the past, people, my grandpa used to eat liver and onions. You know, most grandparents, yeah. right? Like they, or you go around, talking about Greece. They're eating all kinds of things over there. You know, they're eating all the bits and pieces. Everywhere you go, they eat all the bits and pieces, except for the really modernized places. Australia, England, uh, America, like these are the places where people are just like, ah, give me a chicken breast, you know, give me some beef. Like they don't want all the bits and pieces. And those are the healthiest parts. Yeah. Growing up, um, you know, my parents were old school and, you know, Easter is a really big holiday for the Greeks. And the, 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 the night of Easter, the night before Easter, they make a soup called Margarita. And they put literally all the organ meats and all this other stuff in it. And then they also have a dish where it's like they wrap, I don't know, they wrap something or meat in 
the intestines as well. I mean, it's just, yeah, these different cultures, man, they, they ate everything. I mean, it was really like nose to tail. They honored that, respected that because even in like, you know, I, I think back in the days, even the paleo community, before people started getting more hip to organ meats, you know, the focus was on muscle meat, but it's like just having muscle meat is not the answer either. You need to be able to incorporate and get the nutrition from eating organs as well. Do you agree with that? And it's hard. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, hard. it's hard for people. I get it. And I mean, my company's called Nose and Tail. So I, I definitely agree with it. And we try to sneak it in people's diets. Like I have my main product actually is ground beef with organs mixed in. So mm. it has kidney, heart, liver, and spleen. It's the way I eat organs. I don't I don't really care for eating liver. I mean, I'll, I'll eat some raw liver, actually. I think it tastes a little better to just kind of eat it raw or you kind of just swallow it. Do you make uh, like little, like the little like small cubes and swallow it? Or do you yeah, get like yeah. all hardcore, like, li- like liver king and just hold it and just take a bite out of it? Right? <laughs> oh, I did that when I went to Africa. I almost went to Africa with him. Uh, he... This woman, Mary, uh, took me. She kind of helped me plan my trip a year and a half ago. And then she took him about six months ago. I think he went. And I got the, I got disinvited at the last second. But uh, we ate liver with the, the, the Hadza. And they do that. They, they, they kind of just they take it. Yeah, they open up this animal right when they killed it, cut out the guts, and then just immediately like slice the liver and gave yeah. me some. And they just eat it. That was great. Well, this is again where nature, you know, nature has the intelligence and so much wisdom for us. If you look at animals, and correct me if I'm wrong, when an animal goes for a kill, they go directly for the organs. They're not sitting there eating the muscle meat all all, all day. So again, like that should be a sign that that's where the most nutrition is. And so how can we take this wisdom from the animal kingdom and integrate it into our lives? It's very true. It's the first thing. So like I said, the Hadza, that's the first thing they go for. And it's highly prized and they share it amongst everyone. Uh, There's other cultures that, yeah, only the, you know, the best hunters get the liver. There's, yes, all kinds of animals. I saw a video recently in South Africa of the killer, what was it? A killer whale going for a shark, killing a shark and eating its liver. And there's even accounts of when there was a time of abundance in I don't remember when the times were, if it was like a Lewis and Clark sort of uh, like journal that they talked about. They had, when they had excess meat, they would just leave a lot of the muscle meat. They would eat the organs and the fat and all the good mm-hmm. stuff first. And then if they had excess, yeah, just throw the muscle meat to the dogs. Yeah. You know, I like what you said about the getting the ground beef mixed. You know, my wife and I, we, we try to do that when we can. And I like to make like a like a little bolognese sauce or something with mm-hmm. with that, you know, with because it, you know, the I mean the reality is this: we've been conditioned for generations out of of having a taste for a lot of these organ meats because people haven't been eating them, you know. Yes, our ancestors we go back many generations, but you know, last you know 30, 40, 50 years, you know, people aren't just sitting there like having liver all the time. So it it's I think it, it's going to take a little time for us to to build a, a palate for it and. You know, I'm trying to do what I can. I mean, there's times where I, I forget and I'm like, oh man, I need to have some more liver. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do like chicken livers. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, or I forget to take my my capsules. And what what do you think, obviously eating the real thing is best, but if you can't, are you a fan of like the freeze, freeze-dried capsules? Yeah, I think they're fine. Yeah, it, it's definitely better than nothing. And absolutely, why not? If If that's what you're going to do, then do it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 
I want to real quickly, I just want to go back a little bit because we were talking about something and I wanted to get your take on this. You know, when you think about grains and breads, I mean, you look at some cultures like Italy, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. they, a lot of those people have lived to be over 100 years old. So they're eating these things. And uh, and that relates also to um, I've had so many people that I know that have gone to Europe or relatives or, or friends that have gone to visit Greece and like they'll eat the dairy there, they'll eat the the the, the bread there, and they're like, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And they come back to the U.S. and they're like, fuck. And so, do you think the main yeah. reason is just how it's grown and and like the pesticides and the glyphosate, and maybe it, it hasn't caught up to that the same degree that it has here there, or is it something else? Or because they're on vacation and they're like, yeah, life is uh, great. Fuck it. Oh. <laughs> I mean, there might be a little bit of that where they're just enjoying life. It's that mindset. It's a little the placebo effect. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a little part of it for sure. But I think there's there's kind of maybe three main points to why it works. And there's a guy, Dr. Bill Schindler, who's great, who gets into this. He travels around the world. He's a food scientist. He's an anthropologist, archaeologist. So he's taught me a lot of this stuff. It's how it was raised and how it was made, how it's grown, how it's made. So it's it's every step of the process is different. He says they shouldn't be called the same things. They shouldn't even be called the same things. The cheese, you're right, dairy and bread. They should not be allowed to be called the same thing because he's like, the difference between like American cheese, like a craft single and a real cheese that you get in Europe is night and day. Even though you're like, hey, this looks like cheese. This looks like cheese. They're completely different. And same thing with the bread, completely different from even the type of grains they are. Like they're using sort of ancient grains, you know, maybe the the, the like more non-modified older grains. They are not monocropped, probably. They are not soaked in glyphosate because they actually have different rules over there. Then they are not they're refined. You know, they're they're fresher. They're not as refined. They they don't like sit you know in a factory for months. They're fresher then they are actually prepared properly. Like I was talking about the fermentation and you, you can sprout things, you can soak things. There's all these way, these traditional methods. And then they don't have additives in them too. It's like in the US, you have fake sourdough. It's like it has citric acid. So it makes it taste, you don't actually ferment it and get that sour flavor from actually doing the right fermentation process. They just, because they're trying to make more money and they don't have the time to let it ferment for two days. So they just add some citric acid. It tastes a bit sour. And there you go. And then, you know, other additives, right? There's just all kinds of additives. They even fortify, they add in iron. This is a bad thing too, is we have fortification over here that we thought was a good thing, but it turns out if you you just fortify things with iron, you don't want to just put in iron filings. Have you seen these YouTube videos where they look at cereal and you grind up cereal and it's fortified in iron, it's supposed to be a good thing. And then it's magnetic. And this is real. It's like, they're just putting iron filings in your cereal. And it's, this is not the same iron that's in meat. That's heme iron. That's good iron that your body can use. You're just trying to fortify breads and cereals with basically iron filings. That's not good. And a lot of people think that's a huge problem. So from start to finish, they're completely different products. Same thing with the dairy. If you're getting grass-fed dairy from a cow that like eating good grass that, again, isn't soaked with glyphosate, and then you're getting that fresh and you're fermenting the cheese and you're doing it correctly, completely different ballgame. It has all the enzymes. Also, it's not pasteurized. Most dairy in the U.S. is pasteurized. 99% is pasteurized if you look at the volume. Uh, that 
that heating process is supposed to be safer for us, but it actually gets, gets rid of all the enzymes that help your body digest them. So a lot of people who say they're lactose intolerant can actually eat raw dairy because you actually have the enzymes still in it that aren't heat treated away that allows your body to digest them. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Joel, I'd cut you off before. I don't know if there was something you wanted to touch on. No, I've just been sitting here fuming about it for the last 10 minutes. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Um, all right. So obviously, like factory farming is catastrophic. It's devastating. I think it's an absolute tragedy to the animal kingdom. Me, myself, personally, you know, at this point in time, I can't see myself actually killing an animal. There's something within me that, you know, doesn't like that, wouldn't enjoy that process. Uh, I see life, you know, if I look into a, a cow's eyes, there's, there's life there. There's a living being there. Um, you know, obviously, these animals go through incredible torture mm -hmm. on some level. Like, how does one justify the incongruence, the incongruences with adopting an animal-based diet and also having this empathy um, for the animal kingdom in general? Good question. Yeah, we're getting back to the the three pillars. We kind of covered the health angle. Mm -hmm. Then there's the moral angle. And then we can do the environmental angle, which kind of ties into that because you're talking about yeah, yeah. the environmental factors. So the moral thing, it's, it is hard. I actually haven't really killed animals in any large animals, you know, other than like bugs. Until pretty recently, uh, last Thanksgiving, I went to a turkey harvest and I, you know, grabbed my own turkey and did the like little, little bolt to the head and died instantly. And it was, a, you know, it was a sort of like an intense process, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's something that I've not done before. And most humans haven't done because we're, we're just living in cities and we're kind of disconnected from our old way of life. But it, it was powerful. Uh, I, you know, had a lot of respect for it, the, the animal in the process. And I think that's what our ancestors did as well. You know, you, you know, like American Indians, they would have like ceremonies around and thank the animals. And it was like this whole thing, right? It was like they had great reverence for the animals that feed them. And we don't have that anymore. And another kind of like tidbit of information I found interesting is back in the day, maybe over 100 years ago, every single human would have seen multiple animals die before they could even talk. Right. If you're living any time for all of history to like 100 years ago, you wanted a chicken, you killed a chicken in your yard and you ate it. And this is this was just part of nature. This is part of life. It wasn't a, a bad thing. It was something that we all knew and was normal because this is how the circle of life works. And for something to live, something must die. This is a fact of nature. Another person I've interviewed is amazing. Have you heard of Lear Keith? Mm -mm. Oh yeah, uh, the vegetarian the vegetarian myth book. Yeah, I read that when it came out. That that book was powerful. Amazing. She wrote the vegetarian myth, and she actually breaks down the three pillars. She has three sections of the book that do moral, eth uh, moral, environmental, and health. And she was a vegan for twenty five years and had permanent damage, permanent damage to her spine, and from the lack of animal nutrition. And she. We'll tell you all of this stuff in detail, but you can't separate like life and you can't, you, you can't not kill something. Like she even tried. She was like, I'm going to grow my own garden and I'm going to have no death. And then she ended up killing the, these bugs. Then she ended up killing the slugs. Then she had to like kill something else. She just realized for something to live, something must die. That's just the, the laws of nature. 
And some people choose to sort of step away from that and try not to see it. And that's how we're accustomed now because we just live in cities and it just shows up in a package. But that's just how the world works. And, and the best point for this is that more animals die to grow mass-produced plant foods, crops, yeah. grains, corn, soy, wheat, all this stuff that people think are great and guilt-free and what so much of the vegan foods are based on have 10 times the amount of deaths than killing a cow. But it's just smaller animals. But they're not all small animals. I'm not talking about just like bugs. There are mice and there are baby birds and small deer and uh, all kinds of stuff that are killed. So there's studies out of Australia that show how many that they're that per calorie, I forget how they did it per what there was 10 times as many mice died growing corn or, or wheat than compared to an animal food. And they so animals die in all processes of, of crop production, they die to clear the crops, they have to clear fields, they wipe out entire ecosystems to clear the cropland, right? You are displacing animals, you're killing them. It is crazy. I mean, maybe you don't see that that happens once in the beginning. And now you have this cropland forever, supposedly, right? But then they're killed again, when they're killed with all the herbicides, fungicides, all these things, they end up killing your spring, killing all these different animals. They're also farmers have to kill animals to protect the land. They, they pay people, especially in Australia, actually, they, they pay hunters to manage the, the foxes and all these other things that, that, that will eat the crops or eat their chickens or the, you know, so they have pest management. They also are killed when they're harvested, they're chopped up in the combines, right? And, and so they actually have a brutal death being chopped up. And these are like baby deer and ground nesting birds and squirrels. And then here's one more time they die. I didn't know about Australian farmer told me about this. They all starved to death. All these animals, once you clear the, you, you harvest all the grain, harvest all the corn, whatever it is, all these animals that were relying on those crops, you know, they're, they're eating them. They're still there. They all starve to death. So yeah. it's, it, you're, you're not going to get out of it. So that's the thing. Vegans, the idea is you can get away from this death. And you can fool yourself into thinking you're getting away from this death because you just buy a package of fake meat or you buy, oh, I'm just going to eat beans and legumes or whatever vegans eat. That's still not getting out of it. You're, you're, you're tricking yourself. So it's just a law of nature. So it's, it's sad, but true. Yeah, like that, that idea when you think about all the, you know, the ecosystems that are taken down, you know, when they have to till the land or create a new field for all the, the corn and the soy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's life, you know, there's life there. And, and even I used to make this joke, like, well, if you're vegan, you can't go on a road trip. Look at your windshield after mm -hmm. you're done with a road trip. I mean, there's <laughs> going to be, there's going to be a whole lot of dead insects on your windshield, you know, but I think there's this, there's this thing with, with that is that there's this anthropomorphizing of certain animals because they look more human, whereas the ones that maybe don't as much, you don't care, mm -hmm. you know, but, but anyways, man, I don't need to, you know, beat the horse dead, mm -hmm. um, pun, pun intended or <laughs> not intended. Um, anyways, um, that's all I got to say about well, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, Joel was going to, Joel's going to ask about the environmental. Get us with it. Uh, yeah. Well, cause that, it, it kind of ties into that. So 
there's always a cost to create food, right? There's a toll on the environment. There's a toll on whatever that you have to have some sort of energy and sort of repercussions to feed us, right? That's just how the world works. It's so you have to say, well, well, what's better? Like, and a lot of vegan arguments, they're saying, oh, well, there's so much grain and corn and to to feed the animals, then then to feed the humans who eat the animals. And that's not good. You know, you should just eat the grains and then you'd skip that whole middleman, right? And that, see, again, service, it sounds good. It's like, oh yeah, why do I need to feed the animals this? And then, well, when you break it down, it actually falls apart. So for one thing, we don't want cows to eat corn and wheat and all these other ingredients, right? We don't want them in a feedlot. We want them out eating grass, which humans can't eat, right? So we'll just we'll just accept that, that yes, there is a problem if we're doing, you know, feeding them good human food. But there's so much more to the argument. One is they're actually using leftover stuff that can't be eaten by humans, mainly. Most of the feed, I think it's 86% of a of cattle, a cow's diet is inedible to humans, right? So it's not like we're just growing all this stuff and giving it to them. They grow it, they grow corn for ethanol, they do for biofuels. So they make the the ethanol out of the corn and then we get the leftover, give it to the cows. They make beer, they make vodka, they have all this distiller's grain. They have it left over, they give it to the cattle. Right. It's actually a pretty efficient process. Another thing, the they the vegans say they're middlemen. Like, why do we need the middlemen? They're that is actually the benefit. That's actually their best attribute is this quote middleman is they're upcycling nutrition. So having the cow eat it, they're eating low quality foods that humans can't eat and cannot get nutrition from and cannot get protein or minerals and vitamins from. And they're turning it into the most bioavailable complete nutrition that humans need. It's a very good service. And there's a great study that looks at the, the protein specifically, because that's what humans need. We go back to what I said that, that this is the first time in history we are obese and malnourished at the same time. That's because we're eating too many empty calories, right? Human bodies need protein, vitamins, and minerals, and some fats, right? These are the building blocks of our bodies. Then there's energy, which are you know carbs and fats. Those are our energy sources. So most humans are getting way too much energy and not enough nutrients. That's how you can end up obese and malnourished. Does that make sense? If you're yeah. eating, basically why empty calories are bad. People know this. I grew up, don't eat empty calories. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, I don't really get it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, candy, empty calories. That's why candy doesn't have protein, vitamins, and minerals. It's just pure energy, whether it be fat, carbs, or both, right? So that's the problem. Your body doesn't need, especially nowadays, we don't need extra energy. Everyone's got extra energy sitting on their bellies. That's yeah. what extra energy is. It's, it's body fat. Your body just stores it. So most people are walking around with all this extra energy in their body, not enough proteins and vitamins and minerals. So to go back to the study, you, you want to look at like the protein. That's what matters. That's what humans need. It's not like we need endless protein, but I mean, protein is, is what we need. The cows actually give us twofold the protein back than what they eat meaning they eat a bunch of low quality food that has barely any protein in it, right? And over the course of their life, even in a feedlot, they eat X amount of protein. When we butcher that animal and eat it, we're getting 2X, an average of 2X, the protein back. So that is the upcycling I'm talking about. That is the middlemen. 
<laughs> that the vegans are saying bad. I'm saying that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. We don't need calories anymore. Maybe a hundred years ago, we need calories. Maybe in the Saharan desert, you know, in some like really terrible place in Africa where they can't grow enough food, they need calories. What we need is better nutrition, right? And so that's why we do need to, to consider the, the quality of the nutrition. Trish, the, of the foods we get and the proteins, the vitamins, the minerals, and the bioavailability of those. And so that's where animal foods come in. And that's why that they're so superior is that they have more bioavailable and complete nutrition that we can use. What are your views on, uh, obviously, you're talking about animal foods in general, and we're talking a lot about meat, but uh, eggs. Oh, man. Eggs are kind of the world's perfect food. It's, it's again, it's like kind of that complete nutrition. We're talking about like eating an oyster. You're eating the whole animal. You're getting a lot of nutrients by doing that. Eating an egg, it's like that could become a whole animal. Oh, it's not fertilized, right? So it's, it's uh, you're getting so many nutrients that we need. A lot of choline specifically, like eggs, great source of choline. Eat the yolks. Absolutely. Yolks are, that's so crazy that, they were trying to say that the yolks are bad. Cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol. Oh man, it was so crazy. What a nightmare that we avoided egg yolks for so long. <laughs> uh, yeah, eggs are amazing. Yeah, I'm just I brought that up because I'm excited that we we got chickens. <laughs> um, like five months ago, there were little chicks, and now they started laying eggs. Like, you know, a few weeks ago, and and this morning I actually had a we had a rooster too. I had a fertilized egg my wife said these are fertilized eggs that you're having so anyways Mm -hmm. i was just curious because also even in that in like the health world you have some people like do not eat the egg white under any condition just the yolk but then if you think of like a whole egg as a whole like do you think it's better to eat the whole egg or eat egg yolks raw but not uh egg whites raw and to cook the egg white like this is where it gets so like specific where people have their their certain opinions People do get in that nuance. And I guess in a perfect world, I would cook the egg white and eat the yolk raw. I am a fan of that because people get into this like avidin and there's like, oh, it it gets really nuanced and kind of stupid, I think. Just eat the egg. I agree. (laughs) Yeah. That's the thing with the health world, man. Like this is, I've been in this, in this industry and health and wellness and all this other things Mm. for so long. And it's so funny when it comes to nutrition, like the wars that go on, you know, yeah. between people and experts and influencers are like, you cannot eat a vegetable. How dare you? Yeah. That's all I'm, I'm seeing that all around me and I'm trying to be in camp, no camp. That's my yeah. thing. It's just, and that's why I was really high level when I was talking about what's the ideal diet. It is super high level because so many different diets work for different people. Although mm-hmm. that's a bit of a cop out because work is a relative term. You know, there's this idea of thriving or surviving. And so many people are like kind of surviving and they're like, hey, well, but I'm vegan and I'm I'm still alive. And I'm like, yeah, but you're just surviving. Like, or, you know, they'll, they'll point to different things and different populations. They, they are not thriving. Like when we were thriving, we were eating animal foods. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there is a difference. So I do appreciate... Yeah that everyone can do well on different diets and it is true but yeah yeah there's also there's also the geographical aspect as well like i feel like you know if you're in the northeast in the winter 
you know, you might want to be eating more, you know, heavier, dense foods. And maybe like, you know, when you're in the summer in Arizona or somewhere, maybe you might be eating, you know, more fruits, et cetera. You know, so I think that plays a role too, I think. And well, I'm curious what your thoughts are. People yeah. eat the same foods every day, no matter uh -huh. what the climate is. No, no, that's true. There's a lot to the season seasonality of foods. I think that's where there, there are problems. So an example, kale and spinach. So I don't like to like, yeah, like scare people away from certain foods, but I did drink kale and spinach shakes like every day for like two years straight. That's not natural, right? You, you wouldn't be able to have like blended kale and spinach every day for two years. And so there's a whole bunch of oxalates and I, I think I had problems and I stopped doing that and I felt better. So that is an example, but I'm also saying have a kale salad. Do do what you want. You know, like it's not it's not bad for you. There's some influences out there like it's say that it's going to kill you. So you have to be thoughtful about it. Seasonality is big. Um, even geographically, like different like different people live in different parts of the world. Yeah, people closer to the equator, maybe they're better adapted to eating more plant foods, right? But they still yeah. include animal foods. People closer to the equator, maybe they did. Yeah, they have more fruits year round. They had all kinds of starches. But they always had fish and they always had smaller animals and they always had all kinds of stuff. I don't care about people's ratios. You know what I mean? As long as they're eating whole foods and getting animal foods, they're going to be okay. And, and some people do better. People up north, exactly. You're up north. You, maybe your ancestors ate giant animals, fatty animals a lot of the year. Yeah. Is there, yeah. Is there anything to be said for eating for your blood type? I know that was a thing at one point. Oh, I... I Mm. I've looked into a bit on that. I don't really think so. I think there could be maybe that it's just sort of remnants of that ancestral past kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like if your ancestors came more from the north, if you had like Viking ancestry, maybe there's more different blood types from that. So then they are used to eating more meat and fat. And then some people. So I think it's more about the geographical origin of your ancestors more than mm. the blood type. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think what also what we're getting at here and i think we're on the same page i think anyone who gets into this you can say truth-seeking world whether it's about nutrition whether it's about something else but let's focus on nutrition in the beginning you get a little fanatical mm -hmm. you know you start learning things and you're like you how dare you I remember when i first started getting to help i'm like how dare you drink that what's going on how are you eating that it's horrible for you and you just come to a, a another place of more balance and you realize like there's so many elements that play into why one person is healthy versus another obviously huge is a big thing is, is, a, is a big deal but like the psychological stress that you put on yourself when you're so restrictive and like you're like beating yourself up with every bite of cake you have when you go out one night and you're hanging out with friends or you're at some party like that's probably not good for you as opposed to just being like yo fucking going out with with Brian and Joel tonight, we're chilling mm -hmm. and we just ended up having like a cake or a pizza, you know, and, mm -hmm. and we're just like feeling good about it as opposed to then we go home that night and then for 24 hours the next day, judging ourselves and beating ourselves up. That's probably not ultimately good for your body. Would you say? 100%. I am I am so in that camp. Yeah. So in that camp and I know people, most people around me aren't. They don't get that part and they're, they're really obsessive, compulsive about it. They, they have all this bad energy around it. I I have been open from day one about like, I'll eat a piece of pizza, I, you know, whatever. Like we're out, we're doing it, let's do it. Like this is so, and also about the camp. Yeah, in the beginning, I think you have to go on almost a, a five-year journey 
uh, to to get out of those little camps and those you know, fanatical states that people are in in the beginning. And that's why that's why I said I'm glad I didn't make the film like very quickly and have it come out because I think I would have been just more in this sort of dogmatic camp. Yeah, speaking of grateful. men, yeah. How how is the film going, and when can people expect it? Yeah, I mean, I'm working on it now. As soon as I get off this call, I'm back to the film. It's been a long road. We're trying to make it so good. I would go to foodlies.org or go to my Foodlies YouTube channel, watch the intro. The intro was handmade by us. It took over a year to make this intro. We ha- it, It's very good. We're going it's a high very, quality. very, very well produced intro. It is. I watched that. Thank you. That's yeah. literally what Joel said to me after we watched it. He was like, that is excellently produced. It's amazing. <laughs> it, well, that's what we're doing. We're going for top quality production value. This is like, there's been other nutrition films out there and maybe people didn't see them, you know, like, because they just weren't good enough. There, ha- there hasn't been that great of one. I mean, there's some, maybe like Food Inc. back in the day was pretty yeah. good, right? But I still don't agree with the, the message. The kind of message was still like, plants are amazing, avoid meat. You know, so ours is fine. It's like plants are fine. uh, You know, enjoy animal foods. That's kind of our, (laughs) it's like a little bit of the, uh, uh, so yeah, we're trying to go full quality. We're, we're working on every sentence. Like we're talking about every word and rewriting it and rewriting, refilming stuff. We're flying around the country soon to refilm some interviews. It's, it's, we're going all out. We have a custom composer doing a custom score. We have graphic artists that we hired for over a year that's just doing each motion graphic all week every week for entire year for this film wow so trying to finish it by the end of the year and uh get it on netflix get on the biggest platforms we can and it's a six-part series so we can cover a lot that's amazing if you ever need any footage of chickens you just come visit me at the pango okay we're good to go <laughs> i love it we'll get some b-roll yeah Oh, Incredible, man. man. I, I love the level of quality you're aiming for. And if you're going to do something, why not do it as best as possible um, and, and aim for that? That's awesome. Um, uh, Brian, thank you so much for this conversation. I've definitely taken a lot away from it. I'm sure our audience will as well. Do you have a final message that you want to share with our audience? And additionally to that, you know, how can people best, I guess, get in contact and mm-hmm. connect with you? Well, yeah, that first, just search Food Lies. I'm on Instagram a lot. I'm on YouTube, Twitter, whatever. Just search Food Lies. I'm there. I try to put out like some message each day because I'm always learning. I'm always coming across new information and I'll throw it out there. Yeah, my main message, I well, I have a tagline called uh, eat densely, move intensely. Mm. So that's mm. kind of my version. So it's like eat less, move more, right? I made a fun of that earlier, right? It's It's sort of meaningless stupid things that basically food industry made up to put the blame on you, right? It's not their food is bad. It's that you didn't exercise enough and that you ate too much. And you're like, wait a second, but you, your food is designed to make us eat too much. That's your whole slogan. Once you pop, you can't stop. You have food scientists like engineering the bliss point, the perfect flavor to make us eat more. So I think eat less, move more is bogus. It's like telling someone to how to be rich is to make more money than you spend. It's completely meaningless and doesn't help anyone. But eat densely, move intensely is kind of the eat, the, well, the eat 
density part is kind of what we've been talking about the whole day, right? Nutrient density, we're talking about proteins, vitamins, minerals, we're talking about animal foods, we're talking about whole foods. All of that is nutrient-dense foods. What's not nutrient-dense foods is all the processed foods. That's the empty calories. That's, right, this is encapsulating everything we've talked about is the difference between nutrient-dense foods and empty calories. That's what eat densely means. And it can mean different diets for different people. And so that's the eat densely part, the move intensely part. That's also gives people more direction. Uh, I don't think just move more is valuable advice. I don't think just jogging on a treadmill for 45 minutes is, is helping anyone. I think that's not even evolutionary consistent, ancestrally consistent. We sprinted, we walked long distances. I think walking's great. I think sprinting is amazing. I think lifting weights is amazing. I think playing sports is amazing. All these things are, are just sort of more intense. They, you, you yeah, you want to tell your muscles to get bigger. Basically, you want to, you can't, I just don't think doing steady state, doing a little treadmill thing does anything for anyone. You know, that, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. And it actually doesn't even burn that many calories. You can mm -hmm. eat like two extra bites of food and it would just erase all the calories you just did on, on the treadmill. So it, what really matters is people, well, do something that they enjoy so they keep doing it. Like yeah. We didn't get into the, all the, the activity part, but I, I'm into the whole lifestyle stuff, right? So that includes what you eat, includes exercise, it includes sleep, and it includes, I guess, being outdoors, sun, nature, that type of thing. And I think those are all super important. But uh, we'll just kind of like wrap it up here, just saying, focus on those and eat densely, move it densely, and you're going to be, you're going to be pretty good, pretty well off. Awesome, man. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your knowledge. Really appreciate it. It's good to connect for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, like this. I'm going to have to get you back to address the lifestyle one day down the road, perhaps. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Maybe next year when the film comes out, we can do a follow-up. That'd for be sure. great. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for listening. It's the Here for the Truth podcast, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with